Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6. And so if you are using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 811. So if you turn there and follow along as I read, we're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and then verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 6. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me in honor of God's word. This is what our Lord Jesus said. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now down to verse 18. Do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back. Um, we missed all of you. Good to see everybody's faces, and I and, uh, hope you all had a good holiday. We certainly did. Thankful for that time. And over the last two Sundays, um, Tyler and Alex have served up the word well in a series entitled Renewing Disciplines. Um, the title has a dual meaning, as they both explained over the last two weeks, um, but in case you weren't here or you missed one of them. First, there are spiritual disciplines that for most of us need renewing on a regular basis in our lives. We need reminder, we need encouragement to get back to prior habits or, or maybe to establish new patterns. So we need to be renewing these spiritual disciplines. But also the second meaning is that these disciplines that need to be renewed are a means of renewal. They are practices that renew us spiritually as we practice them. 
Okay, so Pastor Tyler um, taught on prayer from Matthew 6, 5 to 15. Alex taught on fasting from Matthew 6, 16 to 18, and some other texts um, in the Bible. If you missed either of those messages, I highly recommend that you go to the website and, and listen to them online. What a blessing to have these two very gifted um, servants of God to, to uh, minister the word to us. Originally, it was going to be a two-part series that they had conceived, and then I was going to preach on giving, something that um, we discussed as an elder council um, in our November meeting, and we decided that I should devote some teaching to the topic, and then I was going to go back to Isaiah. Well, as I listened to Tyler's message and then Alex's message and thought and prayed about it some more, it seemed good to continue the Renewing Disciplines series. So when I got back on Monday, um, I asked if they wouldn't mind me um, continuing their series, and they were quick to encourage it, um, so I'm thankful for that. Um, so we'll focus on the spiritual discipline this morning of giving from the rest of Matthew chapter 6, okay? Then in the weeks to come, we're going to focus on a few other spiritual disciplines, um, namely Bible consumption, okay? I think that's going to be next week, evangelism, and corporate worship, and then Lord willing, we'll get back into the book of Isaiah and our exposition of that, okay? Now, as we head into this material in Matthew 6 on giving, let me just give um, some introductory thoughts here and a caution. Let's all commit to focus on our own hearts this morning. The impulses to look around in our mind's eye maybe at least, and apply the sermon to others can be very strong at times, and maybe especially when the topic is money and stewardship and giving. We are so prone to kind of shift the spotlight to so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so because, man, they really need to hear this, or I sure hope they heard that, or I so wish so-and-so was here. And, And that can be legitimately true, and it can be a loving thing, but sometimes it's not. And you know what? If you haven't realized by now, sometimes we're most critical in the areas where we're most insecure. We've made mistakes. We are ashamed of those mistakes. We don't want anyone to know. We've wasted money. We try to calm our consciences sometimes by pointing at and judging those who have obviously wasted more. Or we're disappointed and frustrated and angry and jealous. We feel entitled and we think we deserve better at least as much as... Must be nice. After all, what did I do wrong? Listen, we've all got enough work to do in our own hearts on this one. Okay? Let's leave so-and-so's heart in the good, capable hands of the Holy Spirit this morning. Let's labor to be honest with ourselves and with God and His Word this morning. We so often, and this doesn't matter where you fall in the socioeconomic spectrum, we so often dance and we justify and we rationalize and we blame shift and we evade and we flatter ourselves on this one. So let's seek to listen attentively, honestly, humbly with the yieldedness of a disciple this morning as Jesus Our teacher, our master, has something really important to say. So one other word here of introduction. If any of you are here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, first off, we're really glad that you're here and you are welcome here. And no, we don't always talk about money here, okay? So the church, at least this church, doesn't want your money, okay? That's not the point. Please feel no pressure at all to give. Instead... What we would want more than anything is to give you the greatest gift that we've been given, the gift of God's Son. The best news in the world is that God so loved this dark, rebellious world, and we're all in that group, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. 
or the Apostle Paul wrote it another way, and you've heard it a couple times already this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he was seeking to motivate the Corinthian church to give based on the grace of the gospel, how God had given to them. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if you don't know experientially that grace that Paul's talking about, then that's really what we'd love for you to receive this morning or for your time of investigating Christianity here or in relationship to any of our our folks here. Only then, when you know that grace, will these commands in Matthew 6 make sense. Okay? So with that introduction, let's dive in. Um, There will likely be slides here for the points. If you also want to just jot notes, there's a a little outline in the bulletin um, with the points here. So let's look first at the first four verses um, under the heading, Give Secretly Not to Be Seen. Jesus begins with a warning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so this first verse is like a heading over all of verses 2 to 18. So it applies to praying, it applies to fasting, okay? But it leads right into the issue of giving in verses 2 to 4. So here's what Jesus says in verses 2 to 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That actually happened in the first century um, where there were trumpets sounded sometimes when people gave um, to announce their giving. Jesus says, don't do it that way. They do it that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. First thing to notice is the word when. Do you see it there twice? Once in verse 2, once in verse 3. This is a normal assumed Christian discipline. Alex pointed out the same point when Jesus says, when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, Jesus is assuming that his disciples will fast. So same thing here with giving. This is a matter of normal Christian discipleship. If Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and you're following him, this is normal. Next thing to note is that Jesus is warning you and warning me not to miss out on reward. Isn't that amazing? What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? Is that the way you view Jesus? Is that the way you view a call to give from God? I don't want you to miss out on reward. At the heart of Christianity is Hebrews 11.6. Without faith... Listen, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe he's the rewarder if you're going to please him. So do we believe that? Do we operate that way? It's easy to give not believing that. There are plenty of people who give in order to receive things from other people. They're not giving to the poor out of love for God or love for the poor. They're giving to the poor in order to buy shares of honor in the eyes of others. They're pretending to give, but in reality, they're intending to receive praise or respect. And we probably are all guilty of that. Those impulses are alive in us. And Jesus calls those who do that hypocrites. They are giving in order to receive honor for something that they're not. They're not really givers. They're mercenaries. You know what a mercenary is? Somebody that serves merely for the wages, you know, um, serving merely for the pay or, the, or selfish, selfish, selfish advantage. So kind of an obvious example would be a young woman who marries an older man for his money which is really just sophisticated prostitution. We are spiritual prostitutes when we use giving or praying or fasting 
as a means to get some reward from people other than the reward that God promises. Okay, so instead of that kind of mercenary motivation, we should give in secret, not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. So what's the point of this whole left and right hand thing? Well, certainly part of that is anonymity, at least as far as we're able. We're not to flaunt our giving. Should be between us and the Lord as much as possible. So that kind of giving is a good test of of our faith in this reward that's promised, right? Have you ever given something anonymously and noticed in your heart a desire that they, you kind of secretly desire that they would find out? Has that ever happened? Well, again, this is part of the point of the left and right hand bit, but I think there's a bit more here than Jesus, that Jesus intended us to see. Jesus is saying, don't just give in secret so that others won't know. He's also saying, give in such a way that you don't really even know. <laughs> well, how's that possible? Jesus, that's crazy. Well, I know in our day and age, if you're responsible, appropriately responsible with budgeting and tracking and taxes, this is going to be impossible at one level. But don't press it too far. The point, I think, is this. Guard your own heart from the kind of self-congratulation that can come with noticing your own giving too much. You see what I'm saying? Do you see that? Why else would he say that? He could have just said, make sure you keep it between you and the Lord. But he's saying, your own right and left hands. So have you ever given generously and looked forward to receiving your giving statement at the end of the year? (laughs) Have you ever secretly taken pride in it? It's kind of like secretly taking pride in humility. Has that ever happened? So, Again, this can apply across the spectrum. If you're relatively wealthy and you give a large amount, it's easy to take pride in how much you give, even if you, you're the only one that knows, and you kind of get puffed up by that. Or if you have less and maybe you're, you're really generous still, it's easy to take pride in how much you give and feel superior to all those you know, comfort, convenience givers. Take pride in how you give. So there, here's the point, I think. There is a healthy self-forgetfulness to the kind of giving that Jesus is commanding here. So we need to guard against our giving being motivated by the reward of the praise, the esteem of others, and also this kind of others orientation that's, that's gloriously, freely self-forgetful. Now, does that mean we shouldn't be motivated at all by reward in our giving? Lest we be mercenaries? That we should only be motivated by duty and what ought to be done, what we ought to do, what's right? Is everything else mercenary? Well, let's listen to how Jesus continues. Point number two in verses 19 to 20. Treasure up real treasure for yourself. Do not, literally in Greek, the verb is the same, it's the same root as the noun treasures. So it's literally do not treasure up treasures. So do not lay up or treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So don't hoard wealth. Don't accumulate stuff on earth for yourself. Don't put your hope in the future or for the future in earthly wealth. Don't stockpile for the sake of your own security. These things are obvious. Don't seek to put yourself in a position where you won't ever need to trust God again. And Jesus starts to give some reasons for this. He doesn't say treasures are bad in themselves. There are a lot of good earthly treasures. So he's not saying don't lay up treasures for for yourselves on earth because material things are evil. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth because I don't want you to have any fun. He doesn't say that. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because if you want to be really spiritual, you'll be poor as a pauper. He doesn't say that. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's not a secure investment. 
He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because they are corruptible and vulnerable and because they won't last. So do you hear what Jesus is saying here? What kind of king is this? This is the kind of king who really wants what's best for us. It's the kind of king who knows what true treasure is when he sees it and he wants us to get in on it. So in commanding, do you see this? In commanding us to give like this, he's really calling us, inviting us to receive. We just, we need to believe him. So like a father whose son wants to burn his piggyback on that mechanical arm thing, you know, with a bunch of stuffed animals or, you know, little trinkets in those plastic circle things, you know, pop open and get this bouncy ball or whatever. The father warns him and tells him of the value of things that are more valuable than, than costume jewelry and stuffed animals. Well, if this is true, then according to the simple principles of investment logic, we would be fools to waste our money on too many wants here on earth because they're such a bad investment. Listen to this illustration from The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. And if you haven't read this, I highly recommend it. And we have five copies um, Beth grabs them at this re- resale shop in Chicago. Anyway, it's a long story. And so we have five copies. They're right here. If, if you read it, come and just grab one, okay? Hopefully the, the um, quotes will whet your appetite. Great little book. Very short. If one of your New Year's resolutions was I need to read this year, you could start here. There you go. Um, start easy. So here's what Alcorn wrote. Imagine you're living at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have any value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. And short-term folks... Before you start to write this off, well, are you saying we shouldn't, you know, save for retirement? What? No, no. See, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to guard against the stuff that rises up with this sensitive subject, and we need to be yielded disciples of Jesus and listen. Okay? Short term includes all of life on this earth. So, yeah, save wisely. You know, there's rationale for retirement, but still, That doesn't undo the import of that illustration. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He says, he doesn't say, don't lay up treasure for yourselves on earth. Give 10% of your money to the temple because it's right. He doesn't lay on the guilt trip. He doesn't browbeat. God's done so much for you. It's about time you give something back. He says, lay up for yourselves (gasps) treasures in heaven. Jesus is commanding us to build our heavenly bank account. So if you consider, just stop and think about this. Do you have a picture in your mind, somebody that you know or heard about in the news or something like that, that would just be the poster boy for laying up treasures on earth? Have you ever known anybody like this? Like just so loving money and so into investments and just maximizing everything? They were like Scrooge or something, I don't know. What if we were to approach our giving that way? What if we could learn from a faithful, devoted slave? What if we flipped it? I mean, Jesus is saying, don't store up treasure like this. Store it up like this. In a parallel passage in Luke 12, listen to how Jesus reasons, because this is not just a one-off as far as motivation is concerned. This is the way Jesus reasons all over the place. And the Apostle Paul Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Go eBay. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very parallel thoughts with Matthew 6. Francis Schaeffer, who, who recognizes that name? Okay, well-known apologist of the 20th century. He wrote, 
He wrote this in a little article. You could look it up and read it. It's a good, good read, Ash Heap Lives. He wrote this. I didn't know he grew up in... Uh, maybe that's a different quote. He guys he grew up in Philly. Imagine a man who has to carry $5,000 over the Alps and who has a choice of two bags. One is made of cheesecloth, and he knows that if he uses it, the money will soon be dribbling out. So he chooses the other, a heavy leather bag. When he arrives at his destination, the money is safe. Jesus is just as explicit. When we lay up our treasures in this life, we have chosen a worthless bag. We are going someplace, you know. And when we arrive, we do not want to find we have left everything upon the way. So what if we really get this? What if we really believe this? If this is renewed in us, we might actually get excited about being involved in as much ministry as possible. We all have limits. But as much ministry as possible. Rather than a minimalist ethic, it's a maximalist ethic. We might actually be motivated to figure out what we need to live on and give the rest. So instead of these little games we play, like, oh, I hope that God doesn't want me to tithe on the gross rather than that, we might be moved to maximize our giving rather than seeking justification for its minimization. Anybody? Amen? <laughs> okay, listen, listen to C.S. Lewis. This is a well-known quote. I'm sure I've quoted it before, and I'm sure you'll hear it many times in other places, but it's, it bears repeating. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud plies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So is the reward that Jesus promises here compelling to you at all? Is that what actually is a part of your giving decisions, your stewardship decisions on a regular basis. So he's the only one who sees what's done in secret. So he's the only one who can reward you. Do you believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him? Okay, this is why this is really an exhortation to walk by faith and not by sight. Thus, this is a call to give by grace, believing these gracious promises through faith. Okay? These are central, vital issues for Christian discipleship, for anyone that wants to follow Jesus. So look where Jesus goes next. He asks where our heart is in verse 21. For where your treasure is, here's why this is so important. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is a really big deal. I hope I wouldn't have to convince any of that, anyone of that. The heart in the Bible is the control center, refers to the control center of who we are, what we value. It's the fountainhead from which all of life flows. That's why in Proverbs it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Okay? So wherever your heart is, is a really important issue. So the question is, Jesus is asking us, who has your heart? Where is your heart? A little later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns those who were not putting their obedience money where their faith mouth was, and I use that in the uh, kind of proverbial expression sense. They were hypocrites, just like the hypocrites here who announced their giving. Matthew 15, 8 says, this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So if we need to hear that, we need to hear that. Um, Jesus cares about where our heart is, and he doesn't want it to be far from him. He wants it where it belongs, in heaven, with what really matters, seeking first the kingdom. Another quote from Alcorn. Where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. Suppose your home is in France and you're visiting America for three months, living in a hotel. You're told that you can't bring anything back to France on your flight home, but you can earn money and mail deposits to your bank in France. Would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and wall hangings? Of course not. You'd send your money where your home is. You would spend only what you needed on the temporary residence, sending your treasures ahead so they'd be waiting for you when you got home. Now, does that mean you can't have anything hanging on the wall in your house? No, please don't 
take this too far, okay? But these are helpful illustrations of what is being said here. Have you ever tested your heart in these matters? Where's my heart? By connecting it with your view of death. You and I, we are either moving away from or closer to our treasures every day. The Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe it's because he got this. I think it is because he got this because, remember that text that Mark read? He's counted everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So he was free. And for him, to live was Christ. For him, to die was gain because his greatest treasure was out ahead. And he was laying up treasure there. Alcorn says this again. Many Christians dread the thought of leaving this world. Why? Because so many have stored up their treasures on earth, not in heaven. Each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. He who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is loss. He who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily toward his treasures. To him, death is gain. Now, Here's a little encouragement if you notice the logic of what Jesus is saying here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart, do you see it, follows your treasure. If you and I, if we want our heart to be where it's supposed to be, we can invest in the kingdom and then watch what happens. We watch our heart follow our investment. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't know, you might think, well, that sounds like faking it. (laughs) I thought God loved a cheerful giver. You know, that would be like faking it in hopes that you would like it. Doesn't sound like good motivation to me. Well, a while ago, I ran across a very helpful, at least it's helpful to me, I hope it's helpful to you, um, quote on a distinction between Faking it and hypocrisy, because those aren't always the same thing. So it's a guy named Eric Tonis who teaches out at Biola University. And, he's, and what I found was at the beginning of each class, he asked students to write down two things they love and two things they hate. And consistently, one of the things they say they hate is fake people. Okay? Tonis then goes on to explain that the Christian life involves a whole lot of faking it on the path to being integrated, to having integrity. Here's what he said, and I thought this was so helpful. There's this idea, quote, there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. That's really helpful in a day and age especially of, <sighs> yeah, anyway, I can't even take the time to unpack that, but that's really helpful. Maybe I'll put it on the blog so you can read it again. <laughs> so renewing the discipline of Christian giving just might be what some of us need to break free from the gravitational pull of earthly-mindedness. As we renew this discipline, it has a renewing effect. <laughs> Jesus says this. So, It's so encouraging, isn't it, that we don't have to wait around for our hearts to change. We can give and watch our hearts follow. Maybe you've seen this happen before in your your life. You buy some stock in XYZ Company, and all of a sudden you're reading articles in the newspaper about XYZ Company. You weren't interested in what they are doing before. Or you bought a house. Before you owned a house, you never noticed what people do with their houses. And now all of a sudden, because you've got some investment here, you, oh, I like that, and oh, I wish we... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, where Jesus goes next is often a bit of a mystery to those who read on. Okay, So let's look at verses 22 to 23 and unpack what he's saying here. He is wanting to give us spiritual 2020 vision. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, so the eye is the lamp of the body. What in the world does that mean? Um, if your eye is healthy, um, we're obviously dealing in the realm of metaphor here. So what do these things mean? Well, the eye is the equivalent to your value system. You could say worldview, maybe. How you see the world and what you treasure, what you value, okay? And you can see, pun intended, how that value system orders all of life for us, right? So the healthy eye is a clear, sincere, single-minded value system that's kingdom-oriented. It's a sincere, seek first the kingdom, love God with all your heart, I, healthy I. It's not divided between two masters. So let's read it again with that in mind. The I is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, if you treasure the right things, your whole body will be filled with seek first the kingdom fruitfulness and faithfulness. But if your eye is bad, if you treasure the wrong things, if your treasure is here on earth, if you value earthly treasure, your whole life will be filled with vanity and eternal loss. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you, you think you see clearly, is actually darkness, oh, how great is that darkness? Wouldn't that be terrible to be blind to your blindness? Which is why Jesus graciously, mercifully is telling us this. How loving. So we either have a good, clear, single eye or we have an evil, bad, divided eye. This is serious stuff once again. And I I noticed this years ago and it's been so helpful to me. Um, Helpful illustration to compare two later passages in Matthew to see what this means, this whole eye and full of life or full of light or full of darkness thing. Do you remember in Matthew 13, 44, there's a little parable about the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure hidden in the field. The man, when he found it, he covered up, he goes, buys the field. He, he sells everything to buy the field. What sacrifice? Oh my goodness, he had, to, he had to just pawn off everything. He had to get rid of everything. Total liquidation so he could buy that field. But rather than it being a drag, he was giggling all the way to the pawn shop because he knew the value of that treasure in the field. It says, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. So if your estate's worth $500,000 and that treasure's worth $50 million, see why he's giggling? Later on, so that's exhibit A, exhibit B. Later on, Matthew 19, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. All those I've kept from my youth. Okay, one thing you lack. Go sell your money, your possessions. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. It's so sad. He goes like this. And he turns away. That's a bad deal. What do you you mean a bad deal? Treasure in heaven? He went away because he had much possessions. He did a cost-benefit analysis between his estate and treasure in heaven, and he said, eh, that's, that's not a good deal. I'm out. Why did he do that? Because he had a bad eye. Two people looking at the same thing. One is skipping to sell it all, and the other one shrugs his shoulders and just goes off. (laughs) Like, don't you want to have a good eye? Don't you want to be able to see? Like, oh, Lord, don't let me be blinded to my blindness. So you have a good eye if if you believe what Jesus is saying here. You value heavenly treasure more than earthly treasure. You have a good eye if you're laying up treasures in heaven. This is this is huge important stuff, and it's good news. It's good news. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. At least if your eye is clear. So is your eye good or bad? According to Jesus, let him test you. Again, let's be honest with him. And then how are we going to respond? 
If, if you find that your eye's bad, you, you've just been like digging around in the dirt like an earthworm with your value system, well, praise God he had you come this morning So he just wants to raise your gaze and show you what's really valuable because he loves you. Oh, man, what a good king. So we could get excited about this command. We don't want to just talk about it and, you know, whatever. We need to respond to Jesus here. Are we all in for the kingdom of God? It's going to look different for each of us, but is there real yieldedness? Like, and, and underneath the yieldedness is, yes, this is good news, not, oh, I guess I've got to do more. What does that say about the character of the master? So, powerful illustration by Ray Ortland. Picture yourself standing with Jesus on the sidewalk of a commercial park somewhere here in town. He points to a building on one side of the street. Don't invest in that company, Earth, Inc. Their security system is inadequate. People are hacking into their computers. Pretty apropos in, our, in the news lately. Um, their physical plan is aging. In fact, their site is condemned. But look over here on this side of the street, Heaven, Inc. Their assets are secure, backed up by the Lord of the universe. Their security is infallible. Their performance impeccable. They've never lost one single dime. Every dollar invested with them has repaid big time. Why do we even hesitate? When we realize what Jesus is saying, the conclusion is obvious. So why don't we live this way more aggressively? It can't be because heaven is out in our future, because earthly investments also require us to wait. So delay isn't always the problem. The problem is unbelief. Something inside feels that earthly wealth is more real than heavenly wealth. Heavenly wealth seems ethereal, thin, unsatisfying. We don't invest more aggressively in heaven because heaven seems unreal, which is another way of saying that God seems unreal. When it comes to investments, what really compels us is the earthly. The Bible says of Abraham that he was seeking a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Hebrews 11.10, Abraham lived in a tent. He was a nomad. But God invited him to go on pilgrimage for a well-established city, and Abraham followed. To him, what a well-established city was to a tent, heaven was to earth, more solid, better established. That man was a believer. Did you know, he goes on, did you know that 50 years ago, $166 bought one share of Coca-Cola stock? Now, I guess this would be more like 66 years ago. I don't know when I found this quote. Um, Or maybe I changed the years. I don't know. And left untouched, today it would be 2,500 shares worth $167,000. And I'm sure those numbers would change. But you get the idea. You could have multiplied your initial investment 1,000 times. Now, as soon as I say that, we're saying to ourselves, boy, I wish I had foresight to do that. What else is out there right now that might be the next Coca-Cola? How are my investments doing? What do I need to move around in the market? All I have to do is drop that little factoid about Coke into the mental pool and the ripples form immediately. If we don't respond to the opportunity for heavenly investment with at least the same enthusiasm, it shows what we really believe in. If we believed that heaven was a better investment than earth, Jesus wouldn't have preached about it. We wouldn't need persuasion. We'd only need opportunity, and people would be fighting for first place in line. But why does Jesus even bother to tell us this? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus wasn't mounting a fundraising drive. His own personal needs were minimal. He wasn't launching building plans. Jesus has no institutional motivation for saying this. What does he care, what does he care about our investments? He doesn't need our money. Does he even care about these little human contrivances called dollars, pounds, francs, and yen? What's motivating Jesus? Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants our hearts. And do you see what he's implying? He has just advised us to invest well. Now he's implying, I know you care about your hoard. You care a lot, so secure it. Don't let the moth rust and thieves rifle through your pockets. Protect your investments by sending them on ahead to heaven. But what I want is your heart, and I want you to invest enough in heaven so that your heart's loyalty transfers up there. So do you see earth, heaven, inks? It all boils down to how you see things. The healthy, clear eyes, a single eye. It's not divided between two masters. Money is definitely a master-servant issue. Point number five, verse 24. This will be super quick. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, not you should not, you cannot serve God in money. So you will either, I will either choose money for my master And I will be its servant, and that happens rich or poor, again, across the spectrum. Or God will be your master, and you his servant, 
And money will be a seek first the kingdom servant in your life, which leads to point six, give in faith, seeking first the kingdom. I read that whole section already in the scripture reading. I'm not going to read through the whole section again, but I want you to see the connection between the laying up treasure and this language in verses 25 to 33. So we've got to see that connection. Maybe, I don't know, again, I don't, the Holy Spirit knows what's going on in every heart here, but you might be feeling a little anxious right about now. Maybe you think, oh no, it's already hard enough, and now maybe the Lord might want me to take another step of obedience. And you're kind of hoping that the conviction passes soon so you can busy yourself and forget all about this one. You're anxious. Well, there's a reason why Jesus went on and said, therefore, (laughs) therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or drink or your body, what you'll put on, your life is more than that. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. You are of greater value than they. I'll take care of, Father takes care of his children. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat, drink, or wear for the nations. Those who don't know God, seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and I will provide what you need. All these things will be added to you. What to eat, what to drink, what to wear. So here's the thing. We need to make sure we don't shrink from giving out of anxiety and fear. We need to be confident of the good and faithful provision of our Father. He's a good Father. So are we seeking first the kingdom with our money? Or are we afraid that, you know, if we do, we might not have enough for the life that we want? So we need to get our hearts where they belong, in heaven. And do you, if, as we step back, look at the whole of chapter 6, and maybe you'll see this. I hope that you'll see this. There is a connection here between giving, praying, and fasting. Jesus said, here's how to pray. Your kingdom come. In giving, seek first the kingdom. And even in fasting, though it's a little um, indirect, Alex said it well last week, we are hungrier. When we fast, we are saying we are hungrier for your kingdom to come than we are for food. Okay, so it it makes sense that Jesus would finish off this section by saying, seek first the kingdom. All of these things, these three disciplines, are ways of seeking first his kingdom. So don't you want the freedom that comes from your life, my life, orbiting around God and his kingdom? And giving is the only way to break free of the gravitational pull of having all of our treasure here on earth. So, I hope that you long for Philippians 1.21 to be true, for to me to live is Christ, to seek first his kingdom, and to die is gain, because I'm laying up treasure there. So what's that going to look like in 2015 for us? I don't know. The Lord knows. It's between you and the Lord. But just a couple thoughts as we close here on renewing the discipline and being renewed by it. So some of you might need to just start giving because you've never actually, maybe you've never seen this in the Bible, maybe, maybe you've resisted it and you kind of have been a low-level guilt, but here Jesus is bringing you the fork in the road and he's saying, trust me. Some of us might need to be renewed in our giving. Some here might need to get some help. Maybe your finances are just a train wreck and you might need to get focused on getting out of debt and on a budget so that you can be freed up to give. There's help for that, both from the deacon fund and council. So please don't be too proud not to ask for help if you need it. Okay? But the point is we all need to pray and ponder these texts and be yielded. Okay? For, for some, you might just be kind of shuffling the papers like, I just want to get out of here so I can stop having to think about this. It might represent a huge obstacle and a step of faith. Well, guess what? Can I just say this? Don't tie that to this sermon or to me. 
because this isn't my words. These are Jesus' words. So it's an issue that you need to work out before God, but please work it out before God. If you don't want to work it out before God, think about what's wrong with that. I mean, I've gone through my own struggles along these lines. I remember the, the time when, when we were kind of being pressed, you know, to go from tithing on the net to tithing on the gross or whatever. I'm like, and I look back on that and go, it was so silly. I was like literally trying to just not think about that one so that I wouldn't have to actually face it. For others, maybe 10% on autopilot. It's easy. It's become this unthinkingly obligatory thing. And maybe periodically congratulate yourself for your faithful, generous giving. It can slide into self-righteousness, you know, for faithfulness and whatever. But maybe there's no sacrifice. Maybe there's no sense of maximizing for the sake of the kingdom. Again, I don't know. But prayerfully be open and work out before God, what, what do you want me to do, Lord? Get tethered to this text and others and see where God wants you to go. So if you're in need of like basic kind of financial counsel and, and you need to wrestle through that so that you can be freed up to give, this was the book of the month um, a few months ago. Um, it's kind of like Proverbs for the, the biblical theological um, motivation and, and um, rationale is not super strong, but it's good on the nuts and bolts, okay? And there's five copies, and if you want one, just come up and get it. And then there's five copies of this if you want some great, um, you know, summary, reinforcing teaching on Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Um, I'm going to leave those right there. And then just close with this, and we're going we're gonna to sing a couple of songs that I think hopefully put into to song the prayers that our hearts need to respond with in regards to this text and these commands from Jesus. So just to close, renew Bethel. Renew this discipline. Because do you see it? God wants to renew you through this discipline. And not only you, but as you seek first the kingdom, he's going to use what you give to renew a whole lot of others who need the grace of Jesus and his riches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know what we need. You know where we are. You know each heart. And I pray that the dialogue, the wrestling, the questions, that they would happen with you. Where it's helpful for us as a community to wrestle through, even in home groups tonight or or this afternoon or later this week, wrestle through what this looks like in application. Help us to do that in a healthy way. But Lord, help us to all just honestly deal with you on these things and respond in faith. For the sake of your great name we pray. Amen.